It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher, and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. Thank you so very much for coming and being a part of this conversation where we are hoping to make change or help you make change by giving you the tools, having the conversations, to give you the tools and the resources and the education you need to make sure that happens. So this morning, we're gonna have a in-depth conversation because communities across the country are grappling with a historic rise in gun violence since the beginning of the epidemic. We're talking about community violence. It's a lot of the conversation that's happening and happening here in New York City. And according to the research group, Gun Violence Archive, gun-related deaths nationwide this year are 14% higher than the beginning of the pandemic. Now, the pandemic isn't the result of, or isn't the cause of, you know, all of the rise in gun violence we are seeing across the country. There has been gun violence in this country for as long as this country has been a country and some people committing more of it than others. But this year alone, there have been 452 mass shootings and we can talk about later the definition of that. And over 3,000 children and teenagers have been injured or killed in gun-related deaths. So in total, there have been close to 30,000 gun-related deaths in this country just in this year alone. And whenever we begin the conversation about public safety, gun violence, and how we grapple with gun violence is one of the first conversations that people bring up, that they talk about. And so I decided to do a series, a conversation about public safety overall. So today's conversation is part of a series that I'm doing here on Sunday Civics that I'm calling Public Safety Requires Community. The focus of the series is to share strategies from across the country and across the world, really, on how we can take control of public safety in our own communities. The goal is to break the mentality that we have that, one, the only entity responsible for public safety is law enforcement. And two, that the response to any of safety issues should always be a criminal response and, you know, we should be detached from it and it should always be punitive. You know, we need to come together and think about different strategies and also part of that is coming together right, as a community. Any of these changes requires community or we're still going to continue to have the status quo. So today we will hear from local leaders, funders, nonprofits, and residents in two cities, Atlanta and Milwaukee, where I've had the pleasure of working and engaging at some point in my career. They have come together and worked to drive down gun homicides in their communities through a public health lens and making sure that it doesn't increase police budgets, it doesn't result in just putting more people in jail and you know creating a whole system over and over again. And so joining me for this conversation, first up is Marquesa Tucker Harris. Marquesa, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for coming to the front of the class. 
Also joining us is Alfred Garner, who is joining us. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if I can be an A student and get Ade Oguntoye. I think I got that. I think or whatever. So let me start first with Marquesa. Marquesa is the executive director of Milwaukee's African-American Roundtable. She helped co-found Liberate MKE, which was a campaign in 2019. And she has been working to invest in communities and spur a more equitable city budget. Alfred Garner leads community safety work at the nonprofit Chris 180, which provides behavioral health, housing, and youth services in the Atlanta area. And Ade is a program associate who supports neighborhood transformation and community safety strategies at the Annie Casey Foundation at their Atlanta Civic site. Thanks to all of you for joining me for this conversation. I really appreciate it. And Marquesa, I want to start with you telling us the story of your first civic action. Yes, thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for this opportunity. I like to preface mine, you know, of course it's it's voting, but I think that my most memorable for civic action was learning about our city budget here in Milwaukee. And once I learned about it, I decided to bring others into that opportunity. So we organized our city around engaging more voices and more people in the city budget. So in 2018, when I learned about it, it was about 10 people who were showing up at these budget hearings. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is the whole city's money. Why is it only 10 people here, including like a couple of the, you know, city workers? And so 2019, we vowed for that never to be the same. And that year we organized over 300 plus people at the budget hearing. So I have to say that that's even though it wasn't my first, it was one of my most memorable because our city has never been the same since. I really, really, really love that. A lot of people don't talk much about getting involved in city budgets <laughs> and getting in the state budget. So, it, you know, the fact that it's your most memorable and as you say, you know, you're showing up and there's like 10 people there and it's probably the same 10 people who've been showing up for <laughs> and they get what they want. Right. But being able to break that stronghold and invite more people in, educate and empower people to be involved in that conversation, definitely being part of your city's budget, your town's budget, county's budget is definitely a great civic action. So we definitely love that. Ade, I'm going to go next to you for you to share with us your first civic action. I served on jury duty and it was a murder trial uh, while I was in college. And um, I know people often make jokes about how to get out of jury duty, um, but it ended up, we ended up helping an innocent person go free. So um, I'll always tell people that you should serve on a jury duty because we have the opportunity to have an innocent person, help an innocent person go free. Ooh, that is a good one too. I love that one. I, you know, I have wanted to serve on a jury and they never picked me. One day, one day in my life, I'll be able to be part of the jury and I'm going to like, you know, be ecstatic about it. So next we'll go to Alfred, who leads community work in Atlanta. Alfred, share with us your first civic action. So my first civic action was also around voting. When I was an undergrad, officially, I had the opportunity to kind of aid in making phone calls for Sanford Bishop down in, in Albany, Georgia, when he was running for, for Congress. So I, I really had a different mindset about civic engagement at that point. But 
my mom and my grandmother, it was, it was a tradition for us to always go and vote together whenever it's time to vote for anything. Yeah, definitely. Families, uh, children that start out, you know, being in that habit, by the time you get to voting age yourself, you know, you repeat that same behavior. So that is definitely voting and taking children to vote so that they can grow up and become voters is definitely a great first civic action. So let's get into the heart of the conversation. I want to set the stage before we take our first break. And Ade, I'm going to come to you to set the stage, I know Annie Casey Foundation was heavily involved in the creation or participatory in this approach of addressing gun violence in communities. So why don't you set the foundation? And then I'm going to go to our friends in Milwaukee and Atlanta to talk about the state of affairs in their respective cities. Yes, thank you. So as you just said, I work with the Annie Casey Foundation. And the foundation is committed to improving the lives of children. So the gun safety space and the community safety space was not a space that we were in. So the way that we got into this work was by asking the question internally, how is our work impacted by gun violence? And the the answers that came back, it was clear that it undermines our effort to be effective in everything that we're trying to do to improve the lives of young people. And so we um, started a journey of researching um, the approaches out there and uh, bringing community in to really craft a strategy. We have just released a report on the findings of the strategies that we've been exploring over the past few years um, that show how when local leaders um, and public officials in Atlanta and Milwaukee uh, come together to implement public health strategies and interventions, Uh, they appear to be successful in reducing the amount of gun violence in the city. I I like that approach, as you mentioned, that the foundation, and I've known the foundation to focus on things like education and play and, you know, foundation sort of said, this is what we want to work on. And then they like force other organizations and groups to fit into the box, the narrow box that they deem is important and that they will fund rather than looking across and seeing what do communities need or what support (laughs) is needed in order for us to continue our work. So I I do like that approach. Alfred, I'm going to come to you in Atlanta to talk about the state of affairs in Atlanta as it pertains to gun violence and how your organization or how you individually came to the table to address this. Gun violence in Atlanta is, is continuing to increase. I think as of right now, I think we're at a total of 101 homicides for 2021. So we're actively engaged in trying to be preventative, but also provide interventions to gun violence in our target area. Chris 180 came into doing the work with Annie Casey Foundation. Um, Day kind of alluded to the process of making sure that you know, residents in this area was engaged in telling us what they needed in this space. And um, we kind of started off with providing the intervention to gun violence because so much trauma was happening in neighborhood planning unit V, which is a cluster of communities where we work. And we started just training residents, stakeholders in how to engage with one another when, when gun violence and trauma takes place. So, you know, we set up small teams to where 
we can literally deploy out, knock on doors and make sure that everybody was okay from a mental health standpoint. And if they were not, uh, we can provide referrals to individual counseling, group counseling, or our healing spaces where we intentionally put up throughout the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So that kind of led into a space of putting our name in the hat to be able to have a cure violence site here in Atlanta, um, looking at gun violence from a, a public health standpoint. And we've been rocking and rolling ever since trying to ensure that we can create new norms in, 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 our, in our neighborhoods. And as of right now, based off the relationships that we forged and working together and providing warm handoffs, just a collective process with everyone. Right now, we're at a total of two homicides in our target area. So we see, you know, the flames burning around us. But as a community together, everybody working together, you know, we, we're seeing a change in this space. So I want to get to the public health aspect after this in just a few moments after the break. But Marques, I, I want to come to you for you to give us sort of the lay of the land. And, you know, as both of you as reading the report, hearing conversations and preparing for this conversation across the country about cities that are similar, right? And me living in Brooklyn, in the heart, <laughs> central Brooklyn, where there is also a rising increase in gun violence you know, our communities sort of look the same, even if they're in different places across the country, that there are the same elements that exist. And that's why I thought it was important to have these conversations because we can learn from each other. But, you know, Marquesa, talk to us about the work that you're doing there. I'm here in Milwaukee, born and raised here. I came into the work after a Black man, Dontre Hamilton, was murdered by police in 2014. I was working at um, an organization that convened tons of partners around voter mobilization and civic engagement. And I became a part of this table called the African American Roundtable. But it was just more of like this supportive table that kind of supported grassroots, uh, progressive Black leaders. And uh, that wasn't enough for me. <laughs> um, and so as the work on the ground with the family of Dontre Hamilton um, began to kind of seep over into the roundtables, like supportive group, we decided that we should engage and support on a deeper level in our community. And it's like, you know, out of all the things that uh, Milwaukee is known for, all the negative statistics, you know, there is definitely enough work for us to create our own platform of work. And the first thing that we thought about was violence prevention. And so we started working on the ground with a group here in Milwaukee that organizes a community called Metcalf Park Community Bridges. And we start to build and develop a relationship with them. The round table is more of a, like I said, a a group of leaders, more of coalition. So we didn't have a base of people that we worked with just these leaders who also had different members. And so as we began to deepen our relationship with the folks on the ground, we knew that there was additional space for us to also do that type of work. And so since then, we have learned, you know, and, and really come to understand the city budget 
as being an opportunity for people to engage in work where we can get resources to do that preventative work. You know, the city budget, those are our tax dollars and they should be spent in a way that is going to support the investment and the betterment of our communities. And so when we learn that police were getting almost 50% of our entire budget in the neighborhoods of getting less than three or 4%, libraries getting less than three and 4%, and the health department where our violence prevention program uh, lives also getting less than 5%. We're like, well, how can we ever combat and prevent um, violence and crime without addressing the root causes? No one department can get that much of the money and think that a city is going to thrive, let alone a a department that does not do preventative work in the way that we know will actually help to save um, and produce better safety for our communities by addressing those root causes. So we got into the work and decided that we wanted to demand an investment of 25 million to go into our neighborhoods, you know, it's a public health. And our first year when we launched Liberate MKE asking for a $25 million divestment from police, their police budget is almost $300 million. $25 million is like a little bitty check to them. And the $25 million going back into public health, violence prevention, and youth employment, we were able to win and we got $300,000 going into violence prevention. We got money going into a summer youth employment program through the city. And then we also got money going into affordable quality housing, which are the things that we continue to fight for. Because again, we know that addressing the root causes of crime and violence will actually get us true public safety. Well, I'm going to take a break here because I want to talk about the Cure Violence model, what you're talking about in terms of interrupting or getting to the root causes of violence to begin with. And then I also want to talk about this public health model, right? So addressing the issue through a public health lens rather than just a criminal lens and how that's different, what the impact is on communities and on the individuals involved in general. So we'll be right back with more Sunday Civics and the conversation when we come back. All the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are talking about preventing gun violence with stakeholders on the ground in Atlanta and Milwaukee. Marquesa Tucker is the executive director of Milwaukee's African American Roundtable. Albert Garner leads community work in Atlanta. And Ade is a a program associate with the Annie Casey Foundation. So thanks to all of you for being with us. I want to go to the cure violence model really quickly because it's the latest thing that people are talking about. I know we talk about it here in New York City a lot. There are various conversations and pilots and things happening all across the country and the the model, I think, is based upon three factors, right? There's interrupting violence, there's mitigating risks, which is identifying people, trying to prevent retaliation and things of that nature, and then establishing sort of a new norm or a new society or a new community or a new way of thinking. So it, for any of you, just to start in talking about the Cure Violence model, how has, whether it's the work that you're doing now or that you've come to know, what 
level of impact does that have on the ground? Like, what does that look like on the ground? Definitely want to start by definitely shouting out um, some of the programs that's in New York. But none of this works in in any city if there aren't individuals that's part of this program that has community ties. That's that's the key to it. Our violence interrupters, outreach workers uh, have ties to these communities in some capacity. So where they can provide a different outlook on things, they're more prone to listening to somebody that they know because they've seen them in the community. So they have a track record of change in their own lives that people can buy into. So that's, that's part of the success. The other part of it is creating relationships with and forging relationships with partners that surround you because we can't do it all ourselves, you know. So if it's something that we're not good at, we need to be able to, you know, get our program participants to the people who are great at that work. You know, that's going to create a different pathway for them. And we provide the support in making sure that we follow up with them provide them with the resources they need. So it's almost like a small family, essentially, and we just all look out for one another. And we want them to be able to see that we don't have to become comfortable with this abnormality. So we create spaces where we reclaim space and occupy spaces and, and, and show them that we can do new things with inside our communities, whether it looks like yoga, meditation, and mindfulness, community cleanups, things of that nature. We want to reclaim those spaces so folks can be comfortable in their own neighborhoods. Marquesa, you talked about before the break, getting to the root causes of violence in communities or gun violence in general. Can you talk a bit more about what you mean by that? What, in your view, are the root causes of these issues? So, you know, what we know, and this is a an example that we share quite often that you guys have probably heard, but we have to first go back to the root of why our communities are in the situations that they're in right now. And we know that um, we have been, our communities have been divested from um, for generations and generations. We know that we are dealing with oppressive systems and we're not dealing with, you know, fairgrounds, you know, to work from and play from and to live from. And so when we talk about violence and the root causes, we know that when folks don't have access to jobs, when folks don't have access to opportunities for transportation to get to other jobs, when people don't own their homes, people, you know, don't have uh, opportunities to uh, get to the, you know, fresh food, when we don't address and um, really resource the basic needs of people, like we see in white communities, they've got access to grocery stores, they've got access to fresh food, they've got access to the buses, they've got access to jobs around the corner. We don't have that in those communities where we see the most violence. We see hopelessness. We see communities that don't uh, pride themselves in homeownership because they don't have access to buy homes, because they don't have jobs that are going to pay a living wage in order for them to be a part of home ownership. So we're, we've learned that what it looks like on this end 
isn't being taken care of. And thus we get all of these other things, even here in Milwaukee, where also, yes, uh, you know, it appears that crime and violence is going up. But we do know that a lot of this was exasperated by uh, COVID. We know that people were told to stay at home. We know people were uh, put in situations where they had to be in, you know, domestic violence situations because there was nowhere else to go. And they're staying at home with who's possibly the breadwinner. And so, again, these are things that plague our communities and because people don't have access to uh, places where they can go to get help in regards to DV situations or people don't have access to health care, they stay in situations and stay in relationships where they're not getting the help that they need it. And that breeds the ground for violence. And we see so much in Milwaukee right now Young people, we have an epidemic right now with reckless driving that is killing people here in Milwaukee. And we haven't had a racetrack in Milwaukee. I remember when I was growing up, there was one in my neighborhood, but they took away all of our, you know, the um, go-kart places. Young people don't have place to exert this energy. You know, we can, we can, we should be able to go get go-karts and drive places, but they're all on the outskirts. So we got to go miles and miles away to other cities just to enjoy some extracurricular activities that could help to curb, I'm not saying in, but could help to curb some of the energies that we're seeing here in our communities. Woo, okay. So similar, like we were saying, similar communities across the country, because here in New York City, just to your last point, you know, everybody is talking about, you know, banning drag racing, which is already banned in the streets, right? It's basically what they're talking about is just further criminalizing it. And I said, well, before we put in measures to curb that activity in, in the streets, why don't we create places for people to do that, that are safe, that is easily accessible, right? We have a subway system in New York City, so we can create things around the city before we do the measures of criminalizing people from doing it in the regular streets. To any of the issues that um, Alfred and Marquez are talking to, right? Is that we don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to know that it exists. We don't want you protesting, talking about you don't give money to our schools. We don't want to see or hear the protests about access to home ownership and jobs. We don't want to see that. And so therefore, we're going to create more punitive responses to sort of take you away so I don't have to hear, see, taste, smell any of these issues that are of our own making. How do we change people's perspective in that way, in that there are these root causes of lack of investment, a lack of resources, a lack of opportunities that exist in communities across the country. And with investment, rather than punitive criminal strategies, we could bring people to a more stable, livable life. Yes, absolutely. I think it's important to, to highlight um, the connection between what Alfred and Marquesa uh, were saying. You talked about some of the problems and the solutions lie in the communities. So I think that's important to say. The solutions actually lie in the people with the lived experiences um, actually being the conduits for change. And that's you know, what the Cure Violence Model says and other public health strategies say. And so what philanthropy and what foundations can do is um, we can highlight um, and bring together um, leaders from uh, the nonprofit sector and from public sectors to really think about preventative strategies as opposed to simply focusing or solely focusing on more punitive strategies. Um, to have community safety, you need community. And so um, we have been funding um, both interventions and research to actually look at, well, what is most effective? When you 
move dollars towards prevention, um, do you actually yield the results um, closer to what um, you what the community wants? And so that's what we're starting to see um, over the last couple of years in the strategies that we have invested in, is that the, the dollars do yield the results that we want. And Alfred and um, Marquesa both talked about some of the reductions in gun homicides um, that have happened. Um, as as um, Joy, you mentioned, you know, gun homicides are going up everywhere. Um, but what we see in, in these two cities um, is that they're not going up in the same way that they're going up in the rest of. So um, I think it is important to, to highlight that. I agree with you. And the part of the reason why, you know, I say that community is central into preventing violence across the country, right? Because Alfred, what you described in terms of people who are credible, who are known in our communities, being sort of taking ownership, and then also the people who are involved, whether they are violence involved or, or not, or just, you know, just your regular seniors or kids in the neighborhood, they are also perceptive in terms of people they see and know are invested not only in their community, but in them, right? Part of the thing, I, you know, I've done youth work, you know, throughout my life or whatever. And I've always trained people that if you're going to engage with young people, one of the things you have to do is be consistent, right? They recognize that difference. And, you know, a five-year-old can recognize that, a 15-year-old, and obviously a 50-year-old recognizing the investment that you must have to be part of that community. Can you talk a bit, just expand a little bit more as we're talking about addressing the root causes of violence, but even being in the space of having to address an issue of public safety, of trauma at the moment, how important, because I just want to stress how important it is for people to feel like you also have some buy-in and some commitment to the community in which you're trying to work in. It's super important. You know, I'll just give you a quick example of the process that I took um, when we started doing the work in NPUV. Uh, I live across the train tracks in Oakland City two different neighborhoods, but literally three to five minutes away from one another. So when I started doing the work, I had to literally go to all of the civic engagement meetings, all the neighborhood planning unit meetings. And before they even addressed me, you know, they had to ensure that I was going to be consistent in coming to the meetings, but also aiding in preparation for meetings, helping set up, helping break down. So it was a it was a small little you know test just to see if I was gonna stay. If they could even trust me, who who am I? You know, Chris 180, what is that? You know what I'm saying? So I had to go through that process and become one with the community. And I'm still one with the community. So it's super important to to get that trust. Again, it all goes back to to relationships. We're not here to tell them what they need in these spaces, but we're here to listen and bring forth, you know, resources that can be sustainable. You know, so we're planting the seed for new norms. We're planting the seed about having safe spaces to have conversation and dialogue versus just going out fighting or grabbing the gun. We're creating spaces and, and training to show people how to check on one another. 
you know, so we don't have to be here. So when we're so now these things and these conversations can happen inside your household. Now they can pass these new normals on to their children, you know. So now we're creating new intergenerational norms in our community that can continue to be passed on and passed on. I always say that if I don't trust the situation or trust what people are saying to me, I'm gonna bring a random teenager with me and they're gonna tell me the they be like, nope, nope, he lying. <laughs> don't believe it because they can tell you in a minute young people know what they need you know communities they know what they need they know what's missing they know what other people have and they don't Marquez, when we're talking about creating that new norm what does what do those strategies look like what are those circles in our communities we need to build or what strategies can you give to other people listening from, you know, Brooklyn to Chicago to other places that they can mirror in their communities or begin to mirror in their communities to address some of the issues that this project is addressing now? Yes. So I think Alfred really started to hit on one of the things, which is how do we start having these smaller conversations, skill building, capacity building on this micro level to where it continues to expand? to, oh, now I'm taking this conversation with me and my homegirls. Now I'm taking this conversation to me and my family. Now I'm going to use this conversation out in the community. And we have to continue to expand and enlarge those enlarge those spaces where we are sharing those skills and those tools that we're learning in these smaller spaces. And so, for instance, we are fighting for a participatory budgeting process here in Milwaukee because the very reason that you all just said, the community knows, the young people know, the people know what they need in their communities in order for them to thrive and be safe. And so with a participatory budgeting process, every we're fighting that every aldermatic district gets a certain you know pot of money, especially with this American Rescue Plan money that's coming down. We're getting like almost $400 million to support people who were you know gravely affected by COVID, which is, of course, mostly black and brown people. And so with that pot of money, they would get to decide where they want that money to be best spent in their district, whether it be, you know, everybody throws in these different ideas like, oh, we want a community garden. Oh, yeah, we want to do more healing circles. Oh, we want, you know, to create like a community engagement program for young people, whatever that is, folks vote on it. And then they put money towards the thing that wins. And then they tear out an opportunity to continue to build and put monies into the other things that maybe didn't get voted on this time. And so they continue to tear out those programs. And so every year during this participatory budgeting process, hopefully through our budget or again with the American Rescue Plan money or whatever other money comes through the city's hands, we can use that to fund the things that people want in their communities. And also, you know, even with us, what we're learning is that we can, as we go out and do this hard work, like the work that Alfred's doing on the ground and other folks are doing across the country, what I've also learned is we can't ourselves do this work without healing the trauma within ourselves. So one thing that we know is really important in our job, in our uh, organizations, we're trying to build a healing component within our own organization because we can't go and say that we're going to be trying to help heal communities and we're not healing ourselves. We're not practicing those things within the infrastructures of our own organizations. And we know that conflict is real and conflict is what 
starts some of the violent activity in our communities as well. People not knowing what tools to use, what conversations to have. And again, if we're going to be out doing this work, we have to be able to model that and we have to be able to do that within our own movements of organizations. And then again, expand those conversations back out, you know, as we're developing leaders add that into the infrastructure of our programs, add that into programming and development so that they can too also take those tools back out into the community. Hmm. Well, we're gonna take our last break and then I finally wanna talk about the public health aspect of these programs and what are some things that communities can look to to address violence in their communities from a public health lens, what that looks like, what stakeholders need to be at the table in order to address that. We'll talk more about that when we come back with more Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We are talking about preventing gun violence with some amazing folks that I hope to still be in community with after this conversation so we can share strategies across the country. Ade, I'm going to come to you because in this work, we mentioned at the top, there's not only nonprofits, but there are businesses, hospitals that are involved. They are all part of the community. Quite often, these bigger institutions, whether they be large corporations or smaller businesses and hospitals, they are seen as outside entities, although they are within the community and they have a responsibility to be at the table and to be part of how we develop new norms. So I wanted you to talk a bit about the other stakeholders that should be at the table, that we should seek out, that should want to be part of the conversations about creating a new norm of public safety, and then to talk about specifically what the public health lens looks like in this work. I want to first start by saying that our investments in Atlanta and Milwaukee um, are part of a national movement that rethinks investments in local communities and thinks about how to reduce reliance on policing and law enforcement as it relates to reducing violence. I think that it's important to say that, you know, this isn't something that we're doing alone. Um, This is part of a national movement. And thinking about those people that need to be at the table, it has to be public systems. It has to be private systems because for community safety to to prevail, all members of the community have to be there. So in Atlanta, earlier this year, the, the mayor announced $5 million in funding to expand uh, the cure violence and the public health approach throughout the city. Um, And she specifically cited the work that Alfred um, and the other partners have been doing in in PUB. Um, And that included, um, and that includes the hospital um, that I was born in, having people at the bedsides, doing a pilot program to have people at the bedsides when people are survivors of of gunshots uh, to redirect their lives. Uh, That includes uh, community, private community partners like uh, Chris 180. Um, that also includes uh, community members. So when we think about a public health approach, the outcomes that we're seeking are different. Um, we're not seeking to penalize people. We're seeking for people to have healthy outcomes. So when we change that narrative and we talk about it from a public health perspective, that means that the goals that institutions have 
also have to adapt and look and, and ask different questions. So as that piece and Alfred, you're you're chiming in here about hospital-based violence prevention programs. Expound a little bit about that in terms of what role we should be looking for medical institutions or hospitals, medical centers to play in this work. So the hospitals know firsthand, you know, the results of what violence can do to a city. You know, uh, Grady has played a pivotal role in some of our pilot programs and how we engage with victims of gun violence. Like they mentioned, you know, they're, they're at a vulnerable state, right? So if our violence interrupters could have some dialogue with them while they're in the hospital bed to get them to look at life at a different angle, right? Whatever you were doing to to get you in this position, let's look at something, a different pathway. We also, that process can also aid in making sure that, you know, patients can come back to the hospital to make sure that their wounds are clean, to make sure that any bullets that may be still in the body. So just following up, aiding and following up with them because the hospital data shows us that most of the time when people discharge, they discharge early and they don't come back for their next appointment. So, you know, just looking at it from a holistic standpoint and aiding with a case management type of lens and helping them get better. The hospital-based intervention program, and great is awesome too, because they have themselves aided in the decrease in homicides in the city because they do their job so well. But, but that relationship with organizations such as ours and others can make sure we bridge the gap between the victims and also making sure that we can create a space for interrupting violence. If we can keep them from retaliating within 24 hours, data shows that, you know, the, the chances of them retaliating decreases. Marquesa, you know, if I'm listening to this and listening to all of, it, it sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like if I want to get involved, if I'm in a, a community in the Midwest or in the Northeast and the, you know, our community is suffering from a lack of investment, a huge amount of criminal response from law enforcement, and there's increasing violence, and I want to get involved, I want to do something, it sounds like I have to do a lot. It sounds like, you know, I have to quit my job <laughs> and sort of really focus on that. And we get a lot of that. And when we're talking about community engagement work, that people feel like this is a whole part-time job. This is a whole nother job in terms of getting involved and making a positive impact in my community. For, for those listening who have never been involved in this work before, but who feel that they want to do something, they just don't know how, they don't know where to begin. What are some of your suggestions on where someone listening to this should begin? In their community, they recognize as you're talking, the same that's happening in Milwaukee or in Atlanta is happening in my community, but where do I start? 
Yeah, it can feel overwhelming, uh, but there's opportunity for everyone in this work to better our communities. And it may not look like protesting for some people. It may not look like showing up at budget hearings and testifying. It may be just as simple as you going in and introducing yourself to your neighbor. <laughs> Start there first on your block. It's building relationships with people. And it's also, yes, going out and just being with people. That's how I started the work. I didn't know anything about protesting. I didn't know anything about, you know, supporting families who had lost, you know, family members by gun violence, you know, by police violence. And so I just one day just went and showed up. And that's led me to a whole career change. Like I went to school to be a sports reporter. <laughs> and look where I am all because I decided that enough was enough something about what was going on in my community was not right. It may not look like the next person, but if you just go out and be with people, I'm telling you the gifts and the talents and the skills that you have, God will place you in a position where you can use those to support the folks that are living in our communities, the ones that need it. Like we, we don't have our gifts to keep to ourselves. We have our gifts to give. Alfred, what are your suggestions for people who are looking to get involved or where should they start to engage within their community? In Atlanta specifically, locals have a history of having a fake ownership of their neighborhood. <laughs> I would argue if your neighborhood is really your neighborhood, you can start by being a part of the civic engagement process, the civic association. You can go online and identify where your neighborhood planning unit is and what day and what time the meetings take place so that you can now become a true stakeholder in your neighborhood. So when you rep your neighborhood, you can truly say, this is my neighborhood. I know what's going on. I know who the president is. I know how decisions are made in these spaces. I know how to advocate for needs that, that we want to see in our neighborhoods. I know who to call. I know what number to call and I know how to pass this information on to somebody else, right? Once you do that, I think you can truly, truly identify what your strength is and how you can be a part of violence prevention programs or intervention programs. So just being a part of what you are good at because we're, we're, we can't do it all alone. So we need strong partners who we can provide warm handoffs to to make sure that our program participants, our residents, our seniors, our stakeholders in our neighborhoods can all of their needs can get met. And we owe that to people in the neighborhood who's been living in our neighborhoods for 30 and 40 years. We owe that to our real, real, I call them the usual suspects, the individuals who come to all the meetings, the ones who come to all the cookouts, the ones who come to all the community events. We owe that to people who have been doing the work and, and been steadfast in making sure that the community needs are met. You know, so start there. And, and I think every city have some type of community vessel where decisions are made and you know who the zone commander is, you know who the, the, the fire commander is, you know who's over uh, solid waste and trash and water and all of these things so that you can get your needs met, become a true stakeholder in your space so that you can really, really represent your neighborhood the way it should be. Right. And Ade, I'm going to come to you in terms of 
institutions, business owners, nonprofits, foundations, others, what are any Casey or you individually, your suggestions on how organizations should be involved in the work? Absolutely. Great question. I think that there's a, things that institutions, public and private institutions um, can do. Uh, one is thinking about how you strengthen community-based interventions, uh, funding and developing the strength um, community-based interventions, changing the narrative, um, having uh, internal discussions and also op-eds and other things to change the narrative about how we talk about community safety. Um, and then also there's funding that's needed um, on, the re on the research and the data collection uh, to make sure that we are doing and funding the interventions that work. Um, so I think that those are things that policymakers and foundations can really focus on. The support, um, again, of the community-based interventions, changing the narrative, research and data. And at the NEKC Foundation, we know that racial equity um, is important. Um, it is critical. And so the disaggregation of that data to make sure that as we think about trends changing, they're changing for everybody. And so that racial equity lens and that racial equity work is really important. Um, and for those people that are interested, whether they be foundations or individuals, you can go on the website, aecf.org.org for tools on racial equity. Um, and also for the report that we've been referencing, find out more about the community safety work that we have been supporting. Woo. Well, I want to thank each and every one of you for joining me for the conversation this morning. I can't wait to share this more broadly, to use this as a stepping off point for those of you who are listening to the show. I'd love to hear if your community is has come together and is working on similar strategies of addressing community safety or public safety from the community's point of view and how you are bringing other stakeholders to the table. I'm positive that it's not just happening in Milwaukee, Atlanta, and here in New York. It's happening all across the country. And we need to lift up those examples so that we can show people across the country that there are other models that we don't have to continue to double down in this model that we have been in for generations where there is a consistent divestment in communities and therefore it creates it incubates space for increased violence and lack of opportunities and then we're at crisis mode 24 7. We can think of new ways, we can develop new ways in addressing public safety in our communities and police. Notice we didn't talk about them a lot in this conversation. We did not talk about them because they are not the sole entity that should be addressing this issue. If our communities are truly ours, as Alfred said, then we can be stakeholders, we can decide what happens in our communities and how we address the different things such as violence, such as education, right? We can take control. One of the biggest difference besides the increased resources that other communities have is they take control. <laughs> you know, they have control and say so over what is happening in their communities. So Thanks to everyone for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Thank you so much to Marquesa Tucker-Harris, Alfred Garner, and Ade Oguntoye 
for joining us for this conversation. I'm hoping that they will be back maybe a couple more months and talk about some of the great successes that these programs continue to have because it's ongoing. Thank you so very much for joining us. We'll be back next Sunday. (laughs) 